please be aware that the following episode involves the murder of a child and some particularly upsetting violence inflicted upon the victims. Despite the image it projects of a well-to-do middle-class suburb, Cheshire, Connecticut is probably best known for the shocking home invasion which took place in July 2007, leaving three of four members of the Pettit family dead. Before the murders, Cheshire was a typical New England town. It looks like the sort of place you might want to settle down and raise a family. This is what Joshua Komiserzewski was thinking as he drove along a tree-lined street, past the large homes with their well-manicured lawns. The idea that the same man, who fantasized about his future family and making a better life for himself, would go on to inflict such immeasurable pain and destruction is particularly difficult to comprehend. I'm your host, Natalie, and this is Talk Murder With Me, Episode 23, The Cheshire Home Invasion Murders. In 1985, William Pettit Jr., who went by Bill, met his wife, Jennifer Hawk, while he was on rotation as a third-year medical student at the hospital where she was a nurse. Bill liked Jennifer from the moment he set eyes on her. Jennifer was a pediatric nurse, and once Bill qualified as a doctor, he went on to specialize as an endocrinologist. Bill and Jennifer married and had two daughters, Haley, who was born in 1989, and Michaela, who was born in 1995. When Jennifer was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 1998, Haley was only nine, but she was determined to help her mother in any way she could. She wrote letters to friends and family, asking them to sponsor her for the annual Connecticut MS Walk, naming her team Haley's Hope. Every year for seven years, Haley participated in the walk, raising over $55,000 for the fight against MS. Although she had accomplished so much by the time she was 17, her modesty and reserved personality meant no one knew quite the extent of her achievements. When she was a child, Bill was often very busy with work, but he would bring her on his rounds at the hospital so he could spend more time with her. Haley planned to follow in her father's footsteps and study medicine at Dartmouth. She was due to start in the fall of 2007. Once Haley left for college, Michaela was going to take over her fundraising efforts, renaming Haley's MS Walk team Michaela's Miracle. Michaela loved sports, reading, and cooking for the family. July 22, 2007 was a Sunday. That afternoon, Jennifer and Michaela were walking down the aisles of the grocery store, buying ingredients for the meal Michaela planned to cook that evening. Little did they know that they had caught the eye of Joshua Komiserzewski, who proceeded to follow them home. It had been a typical summer's day for the Pettits. Bill, Jennifer, and Michaela had gone to church in the morning. Then Bill went to play golf with his father. Jennifer and Michaela planned to head to the beach after they finished shopping. Haley had spent the day with friends at the beach in Ipswich, Massachusetts. She told the family she would be home around dinner time. After dinner, Jennifer and the girls watched TV in the living room, and Bill fell asleep on the couch in the sunroom. 
On August 10th, 1980, Joshua Komiserzewski was born to teenage parents who immediately put him up for adoption. He was adopted by Benedict and Jude Komiserzewski. The couple made the decision early on to homeschool Joshua. It soon became clear to Benedict and Jude that their son was extremely intelligent, but he began getting into trouble from a young age, committing his first burglary at age 14. In 2002, Commissar Jevsky's daughter was born. In the spring of 2007, having just got out of prison for burglary, he gained full custody of her as his ex-girlfriend was in rehab. His daughter went to live with his parents. In 2007, Commissar Jevsky began dating Caroline Messel. Caroline was the younger sister of Commissar Jevsky's friend, Clarice Semchenko. Clarice brought Caroline with her to visit Commissar Jevsky when he was in prison. Caroline and Commissar Jevsky hit it off right away, and they began dating officially when he was released from prison in April. Their relationship became serious quickly. Clarice didn't like this at all, as Caroline was only 18, nine years younger than her new boyfriend. She felt that her sister was not mature enough to be in a serious relationship with a significantly older man. Caroline's father did not like the idea of the relationship either. He believed Commissar Jevsky was a pedophile and was only with his daughter because she looked really young for her age. Stephen Hayes was born May 30, 1962, in Homestead, Florida. His mother and father divorced when he was a child, and he lived with his mother and two brothers. His younger brothers, Matthew and Brian, featured in the 2013 HBO documentary, The Cheshire Murders. In the documentary, they said Hayes was physically abusive when they were kids. Matthew described his brother as being extremely manipulative and controlling. He claimed that Hayes once got mad and pressed a revolver against his head. Hayes tried to excuse his behavior by claiming he struggled with mental health issues, but Matthew was skeptical of this. There was no love lost between Brian and Hayes either. In the documentary, Brian said, quote, Somebody should put a bullet in his head outside the courtroom. Hayes denied the allegations that he was abusive, saying that his brothers were exaggerating and he was not as terrible as they were making him out to be. He said it was their father who was really the abusive one. In 1992, Hayes' daughter Alicia was born. Alicia said he was always good to her and never showed a violent or aggressive side. Hayes and Commissar Jevsky met in a halfway house in Hartford, Connecticut. They had both been serving prison sentences for burglary. By age 26, Commissar Jevsky had been arrested for 18 home invasions and struggled with a crystal meth addiction. Hayes was a recovering crack addict and a seasoned burglar who mainly broke into parked cars. Hayes was paroled in 2006 and moved into the halfway house. Commissar Jevsky had been convicted of 12 counts of burglary and sentenced to nine years in prison in December 2002, but was paroled in April 2007 after serving close to five years. He shared a room with Hayes in the halfway house for about a month. On leaving the halfway house, Hayes moved in with his mother in Winstead, and Commissar Jevsky returned to Cheshire. There was talk between the two men, mainly from Commissar Jevsky, about starting a contracting business together, but nothing ever came of it. 
Hayes' situation was not ideal. His brother was sleeping on the floor at their mother's house, and she was threatening to kick Hayes out. She also told him that he was no longer allowed to use her car. Hayes and Commissar Shevsky stayed in touch after leaving the halfway house. Neither had a job and both needed money. Commissar Shevsky was upset because his girlfriend Caroline had moved to Arkansas with her family. He wanted her to come back to Connecticut so they could start their life together. Commissar Shevsky also knew that Hayes was getting desperate, so he gave him a call asking if he'd like to join him in making some fast and easy cash. Hayes was intrigued. On the evening of July 21st, the two men went on a test-run burglary. Commissar Zhevsky broke into a house while Hayes waited outside. He didn't steal much that night. His goal was just to show Hayes how easy it could be. Commissar Zhevsky was in and out of the house in no time, and Hayes was sold. They made a plan to carry out the real burglary the following evening. Around 7.45 p.m. on the 22nd, Hayes texted Commissar Zhevsky, writing, I'm chomping at the bit to get started. Need a margarita soon. He waited an hour, but got no reply. At 8.45, he texted again. We still on? Yes, Commissar Zhevsky said. Soon? Hayes asked. I'm getting the kid to bed. Hold your horses. Dude, the horses want to get loose. Lol, Hayes wrote. Around 11 p.m. on July 22nd, Jennifer, Haley, and Michaela went upstairs to bed. Bill stayed asleep on the couch in the sunroom. Michaela got into bed with Jennifer, and Haley went to her room. According to Hayes, the plan was to tie the family up, take any money and valuables they could find, and then leave. At 3 a.m. on July 23rd, Hayes and Commissar Zhevsky broke into the Pettit family home. They had a gun, rope, and zip ties. When they found Bill sleeping on the couch, Commissar Zhevsky grabbed a baseball bat that was leaning against the wall and hit Bill over the head with it several times. When he stopped, he told Bill that they only wanted money and not to panic. He asked where the safe was, to which Bill replied that there wasn't one. They bound Bill's wrists and ankles together with zip ties and left him on the couch, bleeding from his head wound. The two then made their way upstairs, where they found Jennifer in her bed with Michaela. They tied Jennifer's wrists and ankles to the bedposts and put a pillowcase over her head. They then dragged Michaela into her room and tied her up also. Finally, they entered Haley's bedroom and did the same to her. As they had with Bill, they reassured Jennifer and the girls that they were not going to hurt them and that they only wanted money. Making their way downstairs again, they made a beeline for Bill, who was still lying tied up on the couch. They cut the ties from his ankles, but left his wrists tied together. They then forced him down to the basement at gunpoint. In the basement, they bound his ankles again and threw blankets over him. Feeling woozy from blood loss, Bill drifted in and out of consciousness. Hayes and Commissar Zhevsky began ransacking the house, looking for cash and valuables, but they had no luck. They did, however, find a bank statement, which showed the Pettits had around $30,000 in a Bank of America account. Here, the plan changed. They decided that when the bank opened at 9am, one of them would drive Jennifer there and force her to withdraw $15,000 from the account. Before going to the bank, Hayes drove to a gas station. 
he found two plastic canisters at the Pettit home, which he filled with gas. He drove back to the house, dropped off the canisters, then got Jennifer into the car with him. He then drove her to the nearest Bank of America branch. He told her to go in and withdraw $15,000. Jennifer went up to the bank teller, leaned in, and passed them a note. The teller glanced at the note and without hesitating, gave it to the bank manager, who ran into her office. Jennifer then left the bank. She made her way back to the car, where Hayes was waiting. She got in and they drove back to the house. At 9.21 a.m., the bank manager called 911. They informed the dispatcher that a woman had just come in, asking to withdraw $15,000 from her account. She then passed the bank teller a note, which said she and her family were being held hostage by two men at their home, 300 Sorghum Mill Drive. Shortly after the call was made, police were dispatched to the address in unmarked vehicles. Once they arrived, they began setting up a perimeter around the house. They then situated themselves behind some trees and observed the scene. There's a fair bit of controversy surrounding the law enforcement conduct from this point. As they went about setting up the perimeter, Commissar Zhevsky was inside the house, raping Michaela as she lay tied to her bed. He then took photos of her on his cell phone. I'd just like to point out that aside from the little information Bill could provide, the whole narrative about what happened in the house came from Hayes and Commissar Zhevsky, so we can't really know how accurate it is. After raping Michaela, Commissar Zhevsky went downstairs to find Hayes and Jennifer had returned. He showed Hayes the photos he took of Michaela, and bragged that he had raped her. He taunted Hayes to do the same to Jennifer. Without hesitation, Hayes knocked Jennifer down onto the living room floor and raped her. Meanwhile, having escaped through the basement bulkhead, Bill Pettit stumbled across the yard and collapsed in his neighbor's driveway. His neighbor came out of his house, and when he first saw Bill, he didn't recognize him due to the blood and bruising. Commissar Zhevsky left the living room briefly. On his return, he told Hayes that Bill had escaped. On hearing this, Hayes lost it. He looked out the window and saw an unmarked police car. He then turned back to Jennifer, grabbed her by the neck, and strangled her to death. He then poured gasoline over her body. Either Hayes or Hayes and Commissar Zhevsky then went around the house, pouring gasoline everywhere, including over Haley and Michaela, who were still tied to their beds with pillowcases over their heads. Accounts vary on who poured the gasoline around the house, but Commissar Zhevsky was adamant that it was all haze. They then set the fire and attempted to flee in the family's car, but they barely made it down the street before they crashed into a police car. They were detained immediately. By the time firefighters arrived at the scene, the top floor of the house was engulfed in flames. Jennifer, Haley, and Michaela were dead inside. Jennifer had been strangled in the living room, while Haley and Michaela died of smoke inhalation upstairs. Haley managed to break free of her restraints and run from her bedroom, but was found collapsed on the landing. Michaela was still tied to her bed. Hayes confessed right away, 
He told detectives that the original plan was only to rob the family, but this changed soon after they entered the house. He described how he had kidnapped, raped, strangled, and poured gasoline on Jennifer. As I said earlier, I'm not sure if it was just Hayes or both men who doused the gas everywhere. There were two canisters of gas, so it may well have been both of them. They also blamed each other for lighting the match that set the home alight. Hayes could not explain why he strangled Jennifer. I wasn't thinking right. I don't know what I was thinking. It was so unlike me. I've never done anything like that, he said. He insisted that all he wanted that night was money, and that they were going to leave once he and Jennifer returned from the bank. Just a quick aside, I couldn't find whether Hayes was asked before his trial about why he bought the gas if he didn't plan to burn the house down. In September 2013, he was interviewed in prison by a journalist from the New Haven Register. When he was asked why he bought the gas, he said, We had both started thinking about how we'd left fiber evidence at the house. It wasn't really to burn the house. My thought was just the presence of gas would bring a hazmat team in. It was just a lot of stupid thoughts. Commissar Zhevsky admitted to following Jennifer and Michaela in the grocery store and then back to their house. He said he targeted them because they looked wealthy and had a nice car. He admitted to bludgeoning Bill with the baseball bat and to raping Michaela and taking explicit photos of her. But when it came to burning the house down with Jennifer and the girls still inside, he told detectives that this was all haze. He said that he confronted him, saying, quote, You can't seriously be contemplating burning these two girls alive. Hayes' trial began on September 13, 2010. His lawyer, Thomas Ullman, told the jury that it was Commissar Zhevsky who was the mastermind behind the whole thing. At every critical point, he said, Commissar Zhevsky initiated the violence, while Hayes just followed his lead. The prosecution argued that both men were responsible. Hayes' sentencing took place on October 18, 2010. Ullman told the jury that a life sentence would be a worse punishment for Hayes than death, because he would be tortured every day by his guilt. The jury, however, recommended that Hayes be put to death. Judge John Blue sentenced him to death for three counts of capital murder, plus 106 years for convictions of kidnapping, sexual assault, and burglary. This is a terrible sentence, but it's one you wrote for yourself in flames. May God have mercy on your soul, the judge said. Death for me will be a welcome relief. I hope it will bring some peace and comfort to those I have hurt so much, Hayes said in reaction to his sentence. In an attempt to avoid the death penalty, Commissar Zhevsky's attorneys offered to have him plead guilty to the murders, but the prosecution rejected this. Commissar Zhevsky's trial began on September 19, 2011. His trial was basically a reversal of Hayes's, in that his lawyers claimed Hayes was really to blame for everything that happened that night. The prosecution argued that Commissar Zhevsky wasn't only interested in money, he was attracted to 11-year-old Michaela, which was another reason he pursued her and Jennifer at the grocery store. Not only did he rape Michaela, the prosecution told the jury, 
Forensic testing showed bleach on her clothing, indicating that he tried to erase any DNA he left on her. Komisarzewski was found guilty on October 13, 2011. The jury recommended that he also be put to death. At his sentencing hearing, he stressed that he did not plan to kill anyone. Millions have judged me guilty of capital offenses I did not commit. I did not intend for those women to die. He added, I will never find peace within. My life will be a continuation of the hurt I caused. The clock is now ticking, and I owe a debt I cannot repay. On January 27, 2012, Commissar Zhevsky was sentenced to die by lethal injection. This is a terrible sentence, but it's one you wrote for yourself with deeds of unimaginable horror and savagery, the judge said. In 2015, however, the Connecticut Supreme Court ruled the death penalty unconstitutional and abolished it outright. The death sentences for both men were reduced to life imprisonment. While Hayes has resigned himself to life in prison, Commissar Zhevsky's lawyers have been fighting to get him a new trial. In February 2016, his appeal team raised the issue of three police radio recordings. The recordings were made during the home invasion and had not been given to his lawyers before his trial. The original recordings were destroyed in 2010 by a lightning strike at the police station. However, backups were found in 2014. On one recording, a member of the SWAT team was told to stand down and not report to the police department. On the second, a hostage negotiator was told not to respond to the scene. On the third, an officer is heard questioning whether Jennifer's plea to the bank teller was legitimate. Commissar Zhevsky's appeal team argued that the recordings would have helped his trial lawyers by backing up their claim that the police response to the home invasion was inadequate. This would have cast doubt on the credibility of the officers who testified for the prosecution. However, prosecutors argued that there was nothing on the recordings that would justify a new trial. In October 2019, Commissar Zhevsky's lawyer, John Holdridge, argued his client's case for a new trial before the Connecticut Supreme Court. Senior Assistant State's Attorney Marjorie Allen Douster argued against the motion. Holdridge presented several arguments to the justices. Number one was that Commissar Zhevsky's first trial should have been moved from New Haven to Stamford on the basis that the New Haven community was, quote, traumatized and terrified by the crime. Number two, Holdridge claimed that there was more prejudice against Commissar Zhevsky in the community because Hayes's trial had come first. During Hayes's trial, Holdridge said, his attorneys argued that Commissar Zhevsky was the mastermind behind the murders. Commissar Zhevsky didn't go to trial for another year after Hayes. As the public digested what they learned from Hayes's trial, the animosity towards Commissar Zhevsky only grew. Holdridge said that Commissar Zhevsky was, quote, reviled like perhaps no other defendant in state history. Numerous editorials and statements by public officials declared the defendant was guilty and was one of the worst of the worst. A state legislator said, quote, Mr. Commissar Zhevsky should be hung by his penis in the town square. In response to the murders, Holdridge said, many were buying guns and dogs for protection. 
The Chief Justice pushed back on Holdridge. The issue here is did he get a fair trial, and I haven't heard yet how you are proving he didn't. Holdridge replied that prospective jurors, quote, can't be believed when the community has been so badly infected. The prejudice was so severe that a fair trial could not be had. He added that jurors have trouble admitting bias when questioned by a judge. Douster was asked what would have to happen for a change of venue to be justified. She replied that the venue would be changed if they could not find any jurors who could say that they would be fair and impartial. But this wasn't the case here, she said. The vetting process found jurors who said they could judge the defendant only on what they heard in the courtroom. Douster said, quote, The publicity for this case was statewide, although greater in New Haven. Awareness was very high in other judicial districts. The differences were not so great as to compel a change of venue. On April 12, 2021, the state Supreme Court rejected Komiserzewski's appeal for a new trial in a 7-0 decision. So, what went wrong? I'll begin with Komiserzewski's past. His former defense attorney, William Garris, who defended him in 2002 on his many burglary charges, reflected on his experience with Komiserzewski. Garris referred to him as a, quote, genius with a photographic memory and attention to detail that no normal mind could possibly retain. The following is what Komiserzewski told Garris when he was in jail awaiting trial in 2002. He always broke into homes at night. He could remember every item he took and what dumpsters he threw them in. He sometimes stayed in people's homes for hours, lingering in their bedrooms, listening to them breathing as they slept. Garris warned the judge that Komiserzewski needed to be watched. If he wanted to, he could be very dangerous. This kid is sick. You're never going to see him again, or he's going to be the worst criminal to pass through these doors, Garris said. As I mentioned a while back, Komiserzewski was convicted on 12 counts of burglary and sentenced to nine years in prison. Mike Lawler, a former member of the Connecticut House of Representatives, explained in the HBO documentary that in Connecticut, prosecutors are meant to order a transcript of the sentencing proceedings and send it to the parole board. This is so the board gains a better understanding of the defendant's character. In Komiserzewski's case, the information that came out of his sentencing hearing for the burglary convictions was damning. At the end of the proceeding, Judge James Bentevegna referred to him as a, quote, calculated cold-blooded predator with a mental abnormality or psychiatric problem that needs to be addressed. Komiserzewski had an extensive criminal history, which began when he was just 14. But somehow this information, along with the transcript from his sentencing, never reached the parole board. Instead, what the parole board saw was a well-spoken, intelligent young man who seemed to show remorse for his crimes. So, granting him parole seemed reasonable. In April 2007, Komiserzewski was released from prison. Three months later, he and Stephen Hayes committed one of the worst crimes in the state's history. Many in the community believed more could have been done to save Jennifer, Haley, and Michaela. 
As Commissar Zhevsky and Hayes were assaulting them and spreading gasoline around the house, the police were outside setting up the perimeter. Bill said that as he lay bleeding in his neighbor's driveway, he saw them standing in the trees as the house burst into flames. Another question is why the authorities never attempted to intercept Hayes and Jennifer as they arrived at the home. Officers were dispatched to the scene within minutes of the call from the bank manager. They arrived by the time Jennifer and Hayes returned from the bank, or just seconds later. Intercepting them before they entered the home likely would have ended the whole thing then and there. At 9.57 a.m., the flames coming from the house became visible. By this time, the officers had been at the scene for close to 30 minutes, but all they had done was set up the perimeter. On the other hand, the police said they believed they were dealing with a hostage situation. They didn't know how many perpetrators were in the house or what weapons they had. Therefore, before they were dispatched to the scene, they were told by higher-ups not to enter the home, not to speak to Hayes as he got out of the car, and not to try to communicate with anyone in the house so that they wouldn't alert the perpetrators to their presence. They were told only to set up the perimeter and wait. It's quite clear that there was a communication breakdown and lack of leadership, which resulted in the worst possible outcome. There have been some developments since the murders. In October 2019, Hayes went on the podcast 15 Minutes With, hosted by Joe Tommaso. He told Tommaso that he's transgender and undergoing hormone therapy in prison. He added that he was diagnosed with gender dysphoria when he was 16, but his family had ignored his diagnosis. Bill Pettit has stopped practicing medicine. In 2008, he founded the Pettit Family Foundation. The foundation has several goals, including to raise and distribute funds to educate young people, particularly those interested in science. The foundation also aims to support people with chronic illness and help protect people affected by violence. In 2012, Bill got remarried to Christine Palouf, who had been volunteering for the foundation. They have one son together. In 2016, Bill was elected to the Connecticut House of Representatives, representing the 22nd House District as a Republican. On January 6, 2008, Cheshire locals Jennifer and Don Walsh organized a fundraiser called Cheshire's Lights of Hope. The event raised money for MS, specifically the Haley's Hope and Michaela's Miracle Memorial Funds. Over 130,000 Luminaria candles were lit and placed outside of people's homes in town. After its initial success, Cheshire's Lights of Hope has become a yearly event. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I'm sorry it's been so long. Things have been a little hectic recently. If you like the show, please give me a 5-star rating and review on Apple or Spotify, and subscribe wherever you're listening now. If you'd like to take your support further, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com talkmurder. The links to my social media accounts are in the show notes. You can follow me on Instagram to see photos from each case. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email me at talkmurderwithme at gmail.com. Until next time.